Well, welcome, and thank you for joining us today uh, as we continue in our series entitled Seven. I don't know uh, if your family is anything like this or not, but in my family, I grew up um, with, with two brothers, and so it was all boys, and, and a lot of my cousins in my generation were all boys as well, so you can imagine there was a lot of rough housing and wrestling and all that sort of thing. And as you know, sometimes boys have a tendency to get a little over-competitive, and, and that was certainly the case in, in our family. And sometimes when that competition level would rise, we wouldn't always treat each other as maybe our parents would, would wish we would. Sometimes things would get a little physical, or certainly there could be some name-calling and all that kinds of things. And, and I'm sure you've experienced dynamics like that in your family as well. But what's interesting about that is it would be one thing within the family when my brothers and I would wrestle around or mess with each other or call each other names and that sort of thing, and we wouldn't think a thing about it. But if, if something similar to that happened and it was coming from a source outside of the family, that totally changed the dynamic. Like my brothers and I wouldn't have any problem calling each other an idiot or something like that. But if somebody else came up and said, hey, your brother's an idiot, immediately our, our posture changed. We, we went to the defense, we came around them and said, hey, don't, don't talk about my family that way or don't talk about my brother. And, and we were much more cognizant, much more aware of a threat when it was coming from the outside than we ever were when it was coming from the inside. Maybe you can relate to that as well. When the threat is external, we have a tendency to be on our guard, to get ready, to get defensive. But when the when the threat is coming from inside the family, from, from one of us, I think our tendency sometimes can be to, to tolerate it, even, even perhaps when we shouldn't, or perhaps even worse, uh, to participate in it. Even when, the, when that same threat is, is affecting our well-being. We're continuing today in our series in, entitled Seven, where we're looking at these seven letters given to seven churches throughout Asia Minor by Jesus. John is recording these visions, he's recording these words of Jesus, and he's delivering them to these seven churches so that Jesus is revealing to each of these churches truth about what they're experiencing, what's going on in their midst. But even more importantly, he's, he's revealing to them truth about who he is and about his role in the church. And in order for them to live out their call as followers of Jesus, what they need to understand about him. And there's so much here for us as the church right now, in our own experience, in our own in culture. We've come down today to this, this third church, this third letter. And this, church, uh, this letter is written to the church in Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum, of, of these seven cities where these seven churches resided, Pergamum is the largest of the seven cities. It was uh, the capital of the Roman Empire in this region, and so there was all sorts of political influences that was wielded out of Pergamum. They had a, a, a cultural center there that um, informed the arts. There was uh, a lot of philosophical kind of educational debate, and, and so Pergamum was an influential city in the region. We might think of it as a sort of this progressive, modern, urban city out of which so much of the trends that would, would take place throughout the entire area emerged from. But in addition to all the cultural and, and philosophical impact that Pergamum had, it was perhaps best known for being a center of, of Greek and pagan worship. Um, the, the 
city of Pergamum was located just at the foot of, of a hill. In fact, to this day, you can go, I brought a picture of, of the modern city of Pergamum. And in the background, you can see where the city is. And yet up on the side of this hill, these ancient ruins remain. And just on this cone-shaped mountain existed all sorts of, of temples where pagan worship was, was practiced all the time. Uh, there was a temple there to the god of Zeus, who was considered the god of gods. And inside this temple was a gigantic throne where it was said Zeus resided. There was temples to Dionysus and Athena and Artemis and Asclepius and all sorts of, of pagan gods and pagan worship took place there. And it was sort of the epicenter of the city. Um, to be involved in Pergamum meant to participate in what was taking place there. Beyond that, though, this same location was where the very first temple was built for emperor worship. This, this same spot, a temple was built for Caesar Augustus, who believed himself and demanded that his, his, the, those who lived under his authority understood that he was the son of God. And there was a temple there to, to worship him, to pay homage to him. So all of this is, is taking place in Pergamum. These, these pagan temples, this emperor worship. And so the Christians that reside there, this wasn't merely sort of uh, one option to follow Jesus among many. It was an expectation that the Christians participate and were involved in the, the pagan worship that defined life in Pergamum. And so they were ostracized. They were even persecuted because they directed their worship exclusively to Jesus. Because they declared together that Jesus was their one true king. And so this is the environment that Jesus is speaking into. This is the environment that, that he delivers this letter to. So we're going to pray and then let's turn to, to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Would you pray with me? God, we just ask that you would meet us as we open up your word. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would continue to reveal to us, your church here and now, more of who you are, and that we would have ears to hear your word for us today, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. This is uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're picking things up now in, in verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days in, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, soon I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You may have noticed here that this letter follows a pattern that's been persistent throughout Revelation. Uh, 
where there's this description of Jesus, a description that, that speaks directly to the need of the church that, that he's speaking to. is a accommodation that they receive, something that they're doing really well. But then he offers a, a correction or a rebuke. And it's ultimately followed by a response that he gives them and, and a promise that he delivers to them. And so notice here that the nature of the accommodation that Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, this accommodation comes as a result of their faithfulness to external opposition. It's, it's, it's coming from the threat on the outside. Again, notice back in verse 13, this is what it says. It says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Again, this, this reference to what is taking place in that city what surrounds them. He says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I, uh, I don't know if you saw much of the news when uh, some of Europe was experiencing the massive flooding over the last couple of weeks. I happened to catch a, a video one day and I was just watching this river where the water had overflowed the banks and the water was rushing through this town and you could, you could see the devastation. And in the midst of those rivers, river, one of those steel shipping containers had been swept away and it was, it was just being carried down the river. And as I was watching, I could tell it was coming up to this, this stone bridge. And my thought at the time was, oh man, this is just going to get blocked here by the bridge and sit there. But that's not what happened at all. When that steel container hit the bridge, the force of the water just ripped it apart, ripped it to shreds. I mean, it, it caught me by surprise because the nature of the current, the force of that water on, uh, that was taking place was so strong that not, something as strong as a steel container didn't stand a chance against it. See, the, the, the environment that Jesus is speaking into there is a, a cultural current that is exerting tremendous force on the church here. And, and the fear that anyone would have that I'm sure they are experiencing is that this is going to rip us apart. And yet Jesus speaks into the midst of that and he affirms them as a church that remains a faithful witness even in the midst of their dire circumstance. He says, I know where you live. I know that you're in the city where he says, where Satan resides, where Satan has his throne. Again, most likely this reference to the, the temple to the emperor, the temple to, to Zeus. Jesus speaks into the midst of that, and he affirms their conviction that Jesus is their ultimate king, that he is the one, the only one who is worthy of their worship. He isn't just seen as, as one option among many in Pergamum. But again, the people there, the expectation of the city, they viewed this position, the, the choice of followers of Jesus to only acknowledge him as king and only to direct their worship entirely to him. They, they didn't understand that as, as being just something that Christians chose. They saw it as subversive. They, they saw it as offensive. And, and ultimately, they saw it as a threat to the empire. Even to the point, as, as is indicated in the text, that one of the early leaders in this church, Antipas, ultimately ends up being executed as a result of his faithful witness to Jesus. There's not 
a lot historically. So this would probably fall more in, into the category of um, tradition uh, that we know about Antipas. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's, it's held that Antipas was a leader in the church and that he was brought on trial for refusing to participate in the emperor and pagan worship. And in the midst of this trial, um, it's believed that, that he was said, if you're willing to burn incense, so participate in this, this pagan worship, and you're willing to pay homage to Caesar, then, then we'll set you free. Um, but Anubis was unwilling because he could only say that Jesus is, is king and he could only give worship to, to him. So ultimately, it's, it's held that he was dragged out to the temple of Artemis where there was a copper bowl there that was used as a part of their, their sacrifices in that temple. And, uh, and he was essentially boiled to death as a result of, of refusing to acknowledge these false gods as a true God. And Jesus affirms his faith. What's interesting, though, even in the midst of that, is that this, this incredible threat coming against the church, the death of, of one of their leaders, it doesn't seem to have demoralized or, or even dispersed the church. In fact, it's very possible that it's kind of galvanized it. They, they remain... Uh, convicted about the reality that Jesus is the one true God. They remain convinced of what he's done. Their faith in him is unwavering. And so Jesus says to the church, you, even in the midst of all of this, even in the midst of circumstances that any of us would find overwhelming, Jesus says, you have remained true to my name. You, church in Pergamum, you did not renounce your faith in me. Even when it costs you your lives, they would not deny Jesus. I've often thought about what, what, what produces that type of faith. Like where, where does that degree of conviction come from? Because, and I don't know if you do the same thing, but when you read something like this and you sort of place yourself in, in the midst of the letter, if you put yourself in the church and you're asking yourself, would I have the resolve to, to respond in faith the way these followers of Jesus did? And ultimately, what creates that in us? I think that is only possible for the church when they have, when they're operating out of an accurate and full view of who Jesus is, which is exactly what Revelation intends to give us. It's to help us understand, to gain a fuller understanding of who Jesus is in order that we might respond in faith to him. That we might live out the example that, that Pergamon did. Because this is the thing. It's, this sort of faith in Jesus is, is not only on display when we're under intense persecution, intense threat like the church in Pergamum was. It's not only in display when we're, when we're facing death. Jesus is telling us this. He gives us this to help us understand it's, it's almost first and foremost on display in the way that we live and how we operate and, and the choices that we make. He's helping us build the type of faith based on the example. He's, he's affirming this in them so that we too can follow their example. There was undoubtedly all sorts of external opposition 
And yet the churches remain true. They've remained faithful. And yet at the same time, there, there is an internal opposition that Jesus needs to address with the church. And this is what we see next. And this is where his correction comes. It's in the midst of the internal opposition. This is back in Revelation. He goes on to say this in verse 14. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also, or likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so Jesus here is confronting some issues that are existing, that are coming from or emerging from, from internal opposition. I, uh, I came across a story this week that, that Pastor Brian was talking about. In the 1920s, there was a company just in Ottawa, Illinois, known as the Radium Dial Company. When radium, the, the element, was discovered, one of the things that they um, found out was that if it was mixed with paint, that paint would have a glow to it. So in order to create uh, faces on clocks or watches that you could see at night, they would use paint mixed with radioactive material in order to create a glow. This company in Ottawa was one of the, the companies that offered these, these glowing clock faces. And the way they did it is they hired women in the community to come and paint the fine lines on, on these clock faces. And they used a method called lip, dip, and paint. You would take the paintbrush. In order to get a very, very fine tip on it, you would get it wet with your lip, dip it in the paint, and then paint the line. And you repeated it over and over and over again. Of course, as you can imagine, and unbeknownst to them, every time they did that, they were taking in trace amounts of poison, trace amounts of, of radioactivity. The results of that were um, so many of these people had birth defects when they gave birth. They ultimately, many of them ended up dying as a result of the radiation poisoning, all because they were touching their lips ever so slightly with this little bit of, of poison. See, Jesus is, he's giving us a warning here for the church. And the warning is specifically directed at what we're willing to tolerate, what we're willing to include. He says that within the church, there are those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who hold to the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we've talked about the Nicolaitans before, this group of people that were teaching that the result of grace on us means it's, it has no bearing on how our lives. So because of grace, because what Jesus has done, we can go participate in whatever we want to and do anything that we want. And, and there really is no recourse or motivation to follow Jesus. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament story of, of Balaam, it is, it's worth going back and, and taking a look at in the Old Testament. It's just a, uh, like, one little point of interest. It involves a talking donkey. Balaam is essentially, he's a, he's a prophet of God, and he is hired by the king of Moab to come and curse the people. In fact, there's a, I'll read just a section of this conversation between Balak, who is the king of Moab, and, and Balaam. And this is his request. This is in Numbers chapter 22. And the message comes to Balaam, 
And it says this, it says, a people has come out of Egypt. He's referring to the Israelites. They've come, they cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. Balaam is, he initially re rejects the offer. He's unwilling to, to participate, and yet Balak, the king of Moab, continues to kind of up the ante, and he is eventually persuaded. And despite this, even in the midst of all this, Balaam is, as he gets there, when he goes to speak, he ends up not speaking curses over Israel, but he actually blesses them and and Balak kind of gets enraged at the whole thing. This is, not, this is not what I paid you for. And Balaam's response to him in the midst of that is, what do, you want, what do you want me to tell you? Because I can only speak the words that God gives me as a prophet. And so when I open my mouth, words of curse, uh, curse over Israel aren't coming out, but rather of, of blessing. But, but what he does do is he ultimately gives them the key to tripping up Israel. He says, if you want them to fail, if you want to remove God's blessing from the people, what you need to do is you need to entice them in to participate in with the gods of, of Moab, with, with your worship, with your idolatry and your immorality. And then Jesus here to this church in, in Pergamum, he's saying there are some here there are some in your midst who hold to the teaching of Balaam. There, there are some among you who, who in, in the midst of this persecution, who are suggesting that maybe it'll all go away or that things will be a lot easier if perhaps we're just a little less rigid about some things. Maybe if we're a little less dogmatic about issues of, of temple worship to pagan gods or if we're not as concerned about paying a little bit of homage to Caesar. But can't we just go along to get along? Can't, can't we conform a bit in order to gain some security for ourselves? Can't, can't we just kind of have a, a foot in, in both worlds? Jesus himself, he, he, he addresses that topic directly in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already taught his followers that you can't live with split authorities in your life. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says it this way. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In the very words of Jesus, he's saying it can't be done. And beyond that, to the church in Pergamum, he's not only saying you can't live this way, you can't do this. He's saying don't tolerate it. Don't allow it in your midst. Don't look the other way and say, what's the harm? According to Jesus, uh, his words to the church in Pergamum, he's saying that a, a compromised gospel or a, a gospel of compromise is a false gospel. And he's saying you got to root it out. You can't allow it. It has no place in the church. It has, it has no place in our homes. And it has no place in our hearts. At whatever level it exists, where it exists, Jesus is saying, you, you have to address that. You cannot serve two masters. We can't with our mouths, 
Look and say, Jesus is king. And then go out and live according to the rules and the, the methods of this kingdom. Jesus is saying those are, those are irreconcilable. And so in the midst of this correction, as he always does, he ends with this, this response and the promise. The response and the promise. This brings us back to the, the very specific description of Jesus that we're given at the outset of, of these verses. This is verse 12. It says, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword that might sound familiar to you. John gives us that same image earlier in chapter 1 when he is unveiling this, this description, this vision of Jesus that he has received and that he wants the church to understand. And then he says this in verse 16. This is the response. He says, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The image of the sword throughout Revelation and really throughout the Old Testament as well is, is primarily understood as an image of judgment. But we have to understand this vision of Jesus in light, or this, uh, this aspect of Jesus in, in view of the invitation that Jesus has just extended, an invitation into repentance. As one commentator put it, we, we need to understand the, the sword first as a scalpel before we understand it as a weapon. When I was a youth pastor here at Chapel Street, uh, we used to take students down to the south side of Chicago in a community called Roseland. And one of the traditions on that trip that emerged is that we would do this intentional time of encouragement that we called hammer time. And students would go and they would hand another student or a leader a hammer and, and talk about some character quality or aspect, some way that Jesus was modeled to them as a result of, of what that student or leader did that day. But uh, Pastor Jeff told me the, the history of, of that time. And it emerged, it started when a student was just sharing in, in group time some of what God was doing in his life, and he held up a hammer, and is, these are work projects, so these things are all over the place, and he grabbed it, and, and he kind of used it as a metaphor. And, and he talked about how on the one side, the hammer is, it's intended to build up, to drive nails, to create. But he also said there's another side of the hammer. And this side of the hammer is, is caused to remove, to get the things out that don't belong, that's... To, to remove the things that are ultimately weakening the, the structure. He said, this is what the Holy Spirit's doing in my life, here on this trip, here in this experience. He says he's building up these things that he wants in me, and he's, he's taking out the things that shouldn't be here. See, here's the question that I want us to wrestle with today. Here's the question that I want us to consider as we process this letter together. And that is simply, where, where am I where are we attempting to, to go along to get along? Like, where, where am I trying to, to conform in order to gain some degree of security or comfort? Where in my own heart, in my life, in my family, where in the church are we attempting to serve two masters? And perhaps even beyond that, where, where am I just tolerating it? Where am I failing to say, no, that is, that is a false gospel, 
See, Jesus invites us as his church, as his followers, to allow the truth of his word to expose and to remove the, the cancer of a compromised gospel. Because ultimately, if, if, if we do not go under the scalpel in repentance, they're saying then the sword will come in judgment. Because he loves us. Because he loves the church. Because he knows what leads to life and what leads to our destruction. And again, go back in Numbers. Read the story of Balaam. Read how it ends. There's a sword there too. Then he gives us his promise. He says, I will give some of you, or I will give you some of the hidden manna. If, if you're familiar with the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament, you know that manna was delivered to them in the wilderness, this, this direct provisions of substance for the people. But he's talking about this hidden manna, this, this future manna, this marriage supper of the lamb in, in Revelation 19, where this substance that I will give you will be for all eternity. He says, I will give you a white stone. And, and scholars and theologians debate the significance of the white stone. I think what is most likely indicated here is that in the Jewish legal system, stones would be used to declare guilt or innocence by the jury. And so if somebody was being acquitted, the jury would drop in a white stone to say, we declare you innocent. I believe the image here is meant to say, when you are faithful to me, when you come to me in repentance, I will declare you innocent. You will be given a white stone, and on that white stone, a new name will be given to you. A new and eternal, victorious identity given to us by Jesus for all eternity. He's saying, this is the promise that I bring to you as the church. This is the promise of Jesus. This is the reward that waits for those who are faithful. This is the calling for us as, as followers of Jesus. These are the words that we need to hear. Where, where is it that we feel tempted to, to allow the kingdom of this world to define how we live, to define what we do? And where is it that, that we are trying to serve two masters? Because Jesus says, I want to come and I want to, I want to cut that out so that you live in full and total obedience to me. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for this word that you have given to your church. We thank you for the, the message that you delivered to, the, delivered to that church there in, in Pergamum. And we thank you for the significance and the relevance of it for us today as your church seeking to live in obedience to you. So God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? That we would understand we are, where we are tempted to compromise. Where we are tempted to kind of tolerate a, a, a gospel that, that would say anything other than Jesus and Jesus alone. And would you remove it from our presence so that we live in faithful obedience to you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. And now, church, go in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is our life, who is our bread, who will give us a new name, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.